Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 103. Two Black Friars, a Curtain, a Rose and a Swan. The London Playhouses, 1587 to 1642, part one. Last time, the acting companies took centre stage as they tried to find both permanent homes in London and towns where they could tour in relative safety and where they might expect a warm welcome. There is more to say about the playing stars of the day, but for now I'm going to switch the focus to the story of the buildings that they performed in. Buildings that were a little, and in some cases very, different from each other, and had their own characteristics, advantages and disadvantages. When I last spoke specifically about the playhouses, it was in episode 2 of this season, an episode called Building Theatre, the earliest playhouses in London. In that episode, I gave you some details about those earliest London theatres, where exact details about the timing and the precise nature of theatrical activity are, to say the least, a little uncertain. There was the Red Lion, a purpose-built stage near a field outside the city that had been used for many years for theatre and other entertainments. Then there were the four inns, the Bell Sauvage, the Bull, the Bell and the Cross Keys, all tolerated within the city. There were also private playhouses operating in halls and rooms of houses, some of which featured companies of boy actors. And finally, there was the theatre, with its complicated history of infighting amongst its owners and lessees, but which was nevertheless a very successful enterprise run by James Burbage, grocer turned theatre builder and actor. The theatre lasted until 1599, when it was deconstructed and its parts taken to Southwark to become the basis of the Globe Theatre. But at least some of the inns survived as performance places well into the second phase of theatre building that we can now embark on. I'm going to look at each theatre in more or less chronological order from their date of building, and some, inevitably, have much longer lives than others. But I hope you'll be able to appreciate the degree of coexistence across the theatre landscape in London and between the major players of the time. Precise dating is, I'm afraid, only slightly improved on that earlier period. Between the River Thames and a hill rising just north of the city, there used to stand a Dominican priory. The hill, still called Ludgate Hill today, as it was back then, remembers the city gate nearby that no longer exists. The name of the area, Blackfriars, recalls the black robes of the Dominican monks who used to inhabit the monastery and wander the streets. It had become not only an important religious building, but a political one too. It was the site of the trial that settled the matter of Catherine of Aragon's divorce from Henry VIII, to his temporary satisfaction at least. The land and buildings had passed from the church to the crown as part of Henry's dissolution of the monasteries, and by the 1550s was in the control of Sir Thomas Cowarden, the master of the revels, who leased, sold and retained various parts until, after his death in 1599, his widow sold the remaining buildings and land to Sir William Moore, a keen advocate of Elizabeth's religious settlement and a wealthy landowner with estates near London. Its life as a playhouse started in 1576, when Richard Farrant, then master of Windsor Chapel, but also known as a composer and a dramatist, took out a lease on part of the building, the former buttery, which was a cellar area for the preparation of food back in monastic days. Farrant was granted the lease on the grounds that he needed space to rehearse the boys who made up the Windsor Choir, 
and who also performed plays for the court. This was only partly true, as he also had the boys perform for paying audiences in the old buttery. But this, it seems, was a common deception. Many theatrical activities at the time were said to be for the benefit of the Queen and the court, but were in fact, to all intents and purposes, commercial operations that sometimes gave performances at court. This became a common model for what were known at the time as private theatres. Modern scholarship tends to avoid that term as the meaning of private has shifted over the centuries and doesn't appear to have been a very accurate description at the time anyway. Mostly, we now stick to outdoor theatre or indoor theatre, with its subdivision of courtly theatre. As you have already heard, Elizabethan theatre, as theatre of the word and the imagination, was very adaptable to whatever space was available for performance, and the same plays were performed in all of these different spaces. At the time, private probably implied that the expected clientele for the indoor theatre was the more wealthy patron because the indoor setting and reduced capacity, compared to the public or outdoor theatres, allowed for a higher entrance fee. The term private gave the theatres that air of exclusivity, which further served to attract the wealthy and the nobility, who went to the theatre not just to see, but to be seen. At the Blackfriars, the stage was probably small, maybe at most 46 feet by 25 feet, that's about two-thirds of the size of the outdoor playhouse stages, but the cost of entry at sixpence for a basic seat but rising to three shillings for a box near the stage was considerably more expensive than the larger open-air London theatres, where prices started at a penny. This was certainly theatre aimed at the very well-to-do audience. Farrant went on to combine his Windsor boys with boys from the Chapel Royal Choir for performances, but he died in 1580, and his widow subleased the buttery to William Hunnis, who was the director of the Chapel Royal Choir. His bond promised to pay the rent promptly and undertake necessary repairs, but just three years later, Mrs Farrand brought a suit against Hunnis for default on his lease, which put her in jeopardy of defaulting on her lease to Sir William Moore. Hunnis attempted to avoid the suit by subleasing to yet another party, but Sir William then brought a case against him to recover the lease, which was deemed to have been sold illegally. A series of legal moves that one might think of as typical in the Elizabethan age resulted in the lease being taken on by Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, who had maintained the acting troupe created by his father and tried his hand at playwriting, but he put running of the Blackfriars Company into the hands of his secretary, the playwright and courtier, John Lilly. His name will be familiar as I included him in the episode on six minor Elizabethan playwrights. Lily was more interested in writing plays than managing a theatre, but remained in overall control of the enterprise, and two of his plays were performed there by the boy players before being presented at court. In November 1583, Sir William Moore won a further suit that made all of the subleasing null and void, and after eight years, the first Blackfriars Theatre closed. It would be more than a decade before the site saw theatrical activity again. London's second theatre was The Curtain in Shoreditch, just a couple of hundred yards from the theatre and, like its near neighbour, just outside the city walls. The name doesn't refer to any stage decoration or covering, but the curtain wall of Hollywell Monastery that stood nearby. The land the playhouse was built on was called 
curtain close. Although we know the theatre was built in 1577, there are no records of activity there before 1584, so we know nothing about who and what was performed in those early years. That record from 1584 is one where the curtain is mentioned in a petition from the City of London, trying to persuade the Shoreditch Parish aldermen to close the theatres in their area. They resisted, but the intervention maybe prompted a change in the setup at the curtain. In 1585, it was leased to James Burbage, who was then also managing the theatre. But still, there are no sound records of what was produced there. The theatre closed in 1596, but then the homeless Lord Chamberlain's men moved in in 1597, and the curtain hosted performances of Romeo and Juliet and Henry IV, parts 1 and 2, and certainly other Shakespeare plays as well. But within a couple of years, the Globe Theatre was completed, and the troupe moved on to their new home. The ownership of the curtain appears to have been a bit of a complicated affair, or at least it looks that way to us now, based on the limited details available. Henry Landman, only identified as a gentleman, appears to have been the owner in the early days, and he may have been responsible for its construction. And it was he who entered into partnership with James Burbage when the curtain was leased to him. That arrangement involved a sharing of profits from both the curtain and the theatre, suggesting that the curtain was as successful as the theatre, or at least was expected to be, and that they may even have worked as a partnership when it came to which plays they presented. That arrangement continued probably until the Lord Chamberlain's men were in residence, but then that agreement was superseded by the more usual sharing arrangement. Evidence of that comes from two actors of the period whose shares in the curtain are mentioned in their wills. The curtain remained a working theatre until at least 1624, but with a fairly consistent battle against requests for closure coming from the City of London. The reasons for its final closure aren't known, and the records of when it was pulled down are lost. Indeed, its exact location was soon forgotten, until its foundations were revealed in an archaeological dig that took place between 2012 and 2016. The remains of the theatre show that it wasn't round, as had been assumed, but rectangular, and that the stage area was 46 feet, and had a tunnel running underneath it. The archaeological evidence confirmed that it was a purpose-built playhouse, with remains suggesting that there were galleried boxes at floor level and a gravelled surface for the standing audience. But unfortunately, nothing of the size and extent of the upper structures can be assumed. Smaller finds at the site included the remains of the money boxes used to collect entry fees, a ceramic whistle and, very appropriately, a small statue of Bacchus. The site is no longer visible, but in a nod to the history of the area, the tower block that has been built on it is called The Stage. The Rose Playhouse was, in 1597, the first playhouse to be built in Southwark. Businessman Philip Henslow and grocer John Chomley got together to finance the project, with the theatre, a somewhat smaller and finer building than the theatre, to be built on land called Little Rose, that Henslow leased from the parish of St Saviour. The impression is that Henslow was always the driving force behind the project, and indeed Chomley's name gets dropped from documents within a few years, suggesting he died or was bought out of the project. 
The Henslows didn't start as a metropolitan family, originating in the Sussex countryside, but they were well connected. Philip's father was master of game for Ashdown Forest until his death in 1562. Henslow Jr. was in London by the mid-1570s working as a member of the Worshipful Company of Dyers, and then as an assistant to a peer's bailiff. On the death of his master, the assistant married the bailiff's widow and took up residence in Southwark. There's no proof, but the assumption is that taking possession of his wife's inheritance allowed Henslow to make a start in business. This was not an uncommon strategy at the time, but it does seem that the marriage was a happy one and it was certainly long-lasting, and we can't deny that Henslow made the best of his acquired assets. He traded in wood from Sussex, no doubt calling on family connections, and maintained interests in the dyeing trade. But he also branched out into pawnbroking, money-lending, entertainments and, most significantly, he bought and rented out properties in Southwark until he became a significant local landlord. As his wealth grew, so did his standing in the parish, and the records show him rising through the various church warden positions and eventually performing services to the Queen as groom of the chamber and as a gentleman sower of the chamber under James I. The titles are partly honorific and probably reflect his involvement with bringing players to court for royal performances. But, as we often find in this period, there were two sides to Henslow and his business interests, and that was not, as far as the record shows, seen as at all problematic. As well as two large rose gardens, the leased land at the Rose included two pre-existing buildings. One was used as a storehouse, but the other, well, this speaks to the strong attractions of the site for Henslow. When he leased the land for the theatre, he was almost certainly already involved in the area, which hosted organised entertainments, most notably the popular sites of bear and bull baiting, which were supplemented with drinking dens, gambling houses and brothels. The second building on the theatre site appears to have been leased out as a brothel by Henslow. I'm sure I've mentioned before that the whole area was in the county of Surrey, safely outside of the city limits but it came under the control not of the county sheriff, but of the Bishop of Winchester. He seems to have had no concerns about the nature of the entertainments from which he collected rental income, which seems odd now as we live in an age very concerned with ethical matters. But let's be thankful for his blind eye, or greed, or whatever it was. Had he objected, theatre may not have taken off in London in the way that it did. Henslow obviously realised that he needed to build a theatre away from the theatre and the curtain, both now well established north of the Thames, and that city residents were already accustomed to the walk over the bridge or the short ferry ride across the river to the entertainments on the south bank. Carpenter John Griggs was employed to construct the new building in timber, lath and plaster, with a thatch roof. The shape was a 14-sided polygon, selected presumably because it effectively worked as a circle but was easier to construct with straight lines. The outer walls were 72 feet in diameter, with the inner diameter being 47 feet. Apart from these details and the fact that it was modelled on the theatre, we don't know much about the inner workings of the rose. However, it does appear in an engraving published in 1616, showing a panoramic view of London from about 1600, made by a Dutch engraver. In the image, the theatre is labelled as the Globe, but its position next to the Bear Gardens means that it must, in fact, be the Rose. 
The engraving shows three storeys and a thatch roof, and confirms the rows as in the model of the theatre and the globe, at least superficially. On the basis that Henslow's personal records of activity at the Rose don't start until 1592, it's assumed that he granted an acting company, or maybe multiple companies over the period, a hands-off lease for five years of the Playhouse's activity. It is thought to have been in use from late 1587. Henslow's records, known as his diary, are a detailed record of performances and income from the Playhouse for the period when the Admiral's men were in residence at the Rose. As a single document, it is our most detailed record of theatrical activity in the period, but it is still quite an incomplete document and leaves many questions and uncertainties. I'll be devoting an upcoming episode to Henslow's diary, so for now I'll just sketch in the history of the Rose. But of Henslow, we can save one thing for sure. He was a successful businessman. No doubt shrewd and ruthless on the one hand, perhaps gregarious and well-liked by friends and business associates on the other. He could see, with a businessman's eye, that there was money in theatre, and he was prepared to make a large investment in it. He also, I would suggest, had luck on his side. He was in the right place at the right time, and benefited from his association with Edward Allen. Later, Henslow and Allen co-owned the nearby Paris Gardens, an area devoted to animal sports, and I use the term sport extremely loosely. Rather than theatricals, it diversified their interests and made them big players in the London entertainment scene. Shortly after James I came to the throne, they were appointed keepers of the royal game, which included a number of exotic animals kept in the Tower of London. Henslow died in 1616, still active in business and theatre to the end. The Rose came into its own in 1591, when the Lord Admiral's men split from the Lord Chamberlain's men, as I've detailed in the last episode on the Elizabethan playing troops, and moved into the Rose. Edward Allen, Henslow's son-in-law, was their leading actor, and Christopher Marlowe became their leading playwright, surely a combination that was never going to fail. The plague period from June 1592 to May 1594 enforced touring in the country as London closed down periodically. During periods of respite from the plague, Lord Strang's men and Lord Sussex's men performed at the Rose for short periods. In the post-plague period, the reorganised troop the Queen's men performed there until the return of the Admiral's men. They were the resident players for seven years in all, most of which was extremely successful. Successful enough that Henslow enlarged the space for the audience by elongating the back wall of the theatre and moving the stage back. That extra space still only brought the size of the rows up to something equivalent to the theatre, the earlier but larger theatre. The rows, thanks to Allen, Marlowe and Henslow, rode high for several years, but then became a victim of its own success. The rows had a reputation particularly for history plays, and public taste changed to appreciate tragedy and comedy more. Audiences had more choice thanks to more theatre construction in the area, and when Allen retired in 1598, life was more of a struggle for Henslow and the players. The construction of the Globe nearby led Henslow and Allen to build the fortune in North London. The Admiral's men moved there, and the Rose was used by Lord Pembroke's men in 1600 and Lord Worcester's men in 1602 and 1603. In 1605, the lease for the site came up for renewal, and Henslow was willing to renew at the same rates, but the parish council jacked up the rent threefold 
and that was too much for Henslow, who no doubt had to fight off many sentimental feelings over giving up his playhouse. But he did, and it's likely that it was pulled down the following year. But Henslow wasn't quite done with theatres yet. It is suggested that one of the reasons for the Rose Theatre's starting to struggle was the construction of The Swan close by. This theatre was built by Francis Langley, who had bought the land of a former monastery for £850. Langley, like Henslow, is a fascinating character. As I mentioned before, he is seen as a troublemaker by the Privy Council, having been involved in some dodgy jewellery trades. He was a goldsmith by profession. And throughout his life, he seems to have maintained some less than desirable connections. In one case, William Gardner, a justice of the peace in Surrey, took out a writ of slander against Langley, who had accused him of perjury. Langley maintained he could prove the charge, firmly stood his ground, called Gardner's bluff, and Gardner withdrew his suit. Gardner was a corrupt official who worked closely with his stepson, described at the time as a certain loose person of no reckoning or value, so you get the picture. This stepson, called William White, then took out another writ, a sort of restraining order, against Langley, two women, and one William Shakespeare. Shakespeare may have been involved with Langley via Lord Pembroke's men, and it's suggested that the two women mentioned could have been working backstage or front of house at the Swan. It's all pretty murky stuff, but some dispute between Gardner and Langley, which came to involve a threat to the theatre and its staff, is suggested. Gardner did, at a later point, obtain a writ to pull down the swan, but it was soon revoked before he had a chance to carry it out, and the dispute died with Gardner in 1597. Langley himself died in 1602. His plans for what would become the swan met with objections from the Mayor of London, but as a former Crown property, the Mayor was judged to have no jurisdiction over the site, so the theatre went ahead. It was a good spot near the established pleasure gardens and with an easy walk from two of the ferry piers on the Thames. Information about the theatre comes from a tourist, Johannes de Witt, who visited London in 1596. His original description and sketch of the playhouse are both lost, but a copy of the sketch and quotes from the description were captured before they disappeared. The sketch, copied by a fellow Dutchman, is the only contemporary drawing of an Elizabethan London theatre that exists. It's clear that Johannes was impressed. It's clear that Johannes was impressed. He called the Swan the finest and biggest of the London amphitheatres, saying it had an audience capacity of 3,000. He added that the wooden columns were so cleverly painted that they would deceive the most acute observer into thinking that they were marble. In his view, the swan had a Roman appearance. His sketch shows a squarish stage raised on short pillars. Behind are two exit doors under the covered rear of the stage, the roof being supported by two pillars. The sketch suggests three levels of galleries with a short tiled roof just covering them. There's no indication of relative dimensions, but as a later copy of an original sketch, we should probably be cautious about reading too much firm evidence into it. But it looks like the Swan was of a similar design to the other outdoor playhouses. The Swan and Francis Langley are best known for staging the infamous Isle of Dogs play by Ben Jonson and Thomas Nash, 
which caused the closure of London theatres in 1597, a story I have already told to you in the episode on Thomas Nash, and unfortunately, we don't have any other details of what was performed at The Swan. After these events, and other theatres reopened, The Swan remained officially closed. There are some odd references to unlicensed plays being performed there in 1598, and then sporadically after that, but then there was a further scandal that more or less finished the theatre off. In 1602, a new play was announced. It was called England's Joy, and promised to be a fantastical story in honour of the Queen. For unknown reasons, the play was never performed, pulled at the last minute, we assume, because the theatre was ransacked by the disappointed audience. At the turn of that century, the Crown and the City of London were keen to limit the numbers of acting troops operating in the capital, which is taken as a contributing factor to the intermittent opening of the Swan, and why it was often the home for other amusements, fencing competitions, bear baitings and the like, rather than theatre. In 1615, the Swan was closed up and remained so for six years. It was reopened by an unknown troop in 1621, but their stay was brief. Inevitably, the underused and closed building began to decay, and in 1632, Nicholas Goodman commented on its state in a pamphlet. He rather aptly described it as fallen into decay, and like a dying swan, hangs her head and sings her own dirge. That is the last mention of the swan in the historical record. Just a year after the Swan opened its doors, theatre returned to the Blackfriars Priory. In 1596, James Burbage purchased the former refectory and other rooms in the Priory. This was a very different space from the old buttery that had been the home to the boys' performances more than a decade before. Burbage paid £600 for the rooms, of which the main area is thought to have been about 150 by 50 feet. Beside the potential for a larger stage area, this room also had the advantage of very high ceilings, which allowed Burbage to build galleried seating. Descriptions of exactly how the space was used for staging plays are unfortunately almost non-existent, but it's likely that there were two tiring areas and perhaps a capacity for 600 to 900 persons in the audience. To imagine a long, high-ceilinged room with a large stage filling one end, with floor-level seating and at least two galleries, is about the best we can do. And of course, we have to talk about lighting. The indoor theatres relied on candlelight both in the auditorium and on stage, where perhaps a degree of reflective materials were used to intensify the light given off. Mentions from around 1600 indicate that musical interludes were introduced between the play acts, perhaps to allow for the tapering and replacement of candles during the performance. However, the old priory was in a well-to-do part of the city and the local residents objected to the playhouse on the site, presumably worried about the size and nature of the crowds that it might attract. The Privy Council lent their weight to the petitions and Burbage was soon banned from allowing performances. Three years later, he sold the lease to Henry Evans who at one point had had an interest in the multiple leases sold over the Buttery Theatre 15 years earlier. He created a partnership with the Chapel Royal and, repeating the model of the earlier theatre, he presented plays performed by the choristers before presentation at court. There seems to have been no objection to this model, which perhaps tells us a lot about the difference in the societal attitudes to the boys' troops versus the adult players. 
these attitudes changed and boy troops slowly fell out of favour. Burbage moved the king's men into the Blackfriars in 1608, effectively marking the end of the popularity of boy players. The king's men split their time, performing at the Blackfriars in winter and at the Globe in the summer months. They would perform some of the best work of the period, by Shakespeare, Johnson, Thomas Middleton, George Chapman and others. And by the 1610s, Beaumont and Fletcher were the resident rising authorial talents. Throughout its life, the Blackfriars remained a more exclusive kind of theatre, where higher seat prices kept the poorer classes out and allowed the more wealthy and the nobility to see and be seen. The higher income was reflected in the income sharers could take from performances at the Blackfriars, but of course there were also extra costs, particularly in the number of candles that must have been burnt. The theatre remained active right up to the start of the English Civil War in 1642, and the entire building was demolished in August 1665. And there I'm going to close out on the Elizabethan theatres for the moment. When I started to pull together the details for this episode, I became very aware of a couple of things. One is just how little we really know for sure about the workings and even the look of the Elizabethan playhouses, let alone the indoor theatres. Yes, we have an idea that is probably reasonably accurate, and we can get a sense of what they were like by visiting the various reconstructions that have been built around the world. But these, even with the very best research, are at best good estimates. Just think back to the example I quoted earlier of The Curtain, the second purpose-built playhouse. Until the very recent excavations there, it was assumed that all playhouses followed the theatre as their model. But here we have the very next theatre to be built following a rectangular-shaped construction rather than the round construction. And then the rose uses the polygon as its basic shape. I think that's just a small example of how the likes of Burbage, Henslow and Langley in partnership with their master carpenters, were always looking for better ways to build theatres and were happy to experiment as they went. And we have to look at each theatre as an individual construction. And the other point that was brought home to me as I wrote this episode was just how significant these particular individuals are in the history of theatre. We think of the playwrights, Shakespeare, Johnson, Marlowe and others, and the actors, Kemp, Burbage, Allen and others, as all being crucial to the development of theatre as we know it, and they are. But there's also the theatre builders, Burbage Senior and Philip Henslow in particular, who it seems to me facilitated everything that was to come by holding to the vision of what theatre could be. And yes, they did it for commercial reasons, but I like to think that they did it for the love of the art too. Next time, I'll continue with this look at the Elizabethan theatres, which will include several lesser-known theatres, and also the most famous of all of the theatres of the period, thanks to its famous residence and its later reconstruction, the Globe. In the meantime, please do think about leaving a review to help others find the podcast, or just let me know your thoughts by email. You can join the Facebook page or group, or find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast on the website, which is at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com.
There's also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.